Welcome to VPG's Virtual Water Cooler Chat Podcast, where we share lessons and stories of women professionals to help empower other women and expand a greater circle of influence so we walk our journey with those who understand and appreciate us. Today, we'll chat with Deepa Prashathaman about reinventing power in corporate America. An executive fellow at Harvard Business School, Deepa is a visionary leader, acclaimed author, and passionate speaker on topics related to empowering growth for women of color. She is a co-founder of Enformation, a company for women of color by women of color, and the author of The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. Hello, Deepa. Thank you so much for joining our virtual water cooler chat. You're one of my role models. So I really, really am very appreciative of you um, accepting this because I know how, you know, how much uh, in demand you are on the podcast review, you know, on the podcast as well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and congratulations on launching this. Well, you know, I got some some time, some spare time. So I thought, hmm, what would be the new goal for 2023? I don't know if you remember, but we met on Simon Sinek platform and Rod and you were really instrumental in helping me to think outside of the box of, you know, especially from the women of color perspective. So um, when you wrote the book, of course, I was like, oh, and also when you guys launched, um, information I've been following and um, both of you and also read the book and whenever I like some things I would buy both the hard copy and also the audio version so without further ado let's get into this chat would you mind sharing your cultural background and what makes you deeper yeah so um, I was born in the United States I was born in Ohio um, but my parents emigrated to this country in the late 60s. And so there was a lot of um, um, confusion around identity. So I'm Indian, right? American by, by background. But I think there's a lot of confusion when you are first generation. That also adds to, to that discussion. Um, and uh, we grew up in a very, we moved to New, Jer- New Jersey when I was very little, like a baby. And so I grew up in New Jersey, but at the time I was growing up, there wasn't uh, the diversity it is now. There wasn't the large Indian population. And so we grew up in a very small farm country town where we were maybe one of four families of color uh, growing up. And so these conversations around belonging have always been really core and central to who I am and what I am. I think as far as what makes me me, I think it's some of those experiences growing up. Um, I'm the oldest of two daughters and I grew up in some ways in a very liberal family and in some ways in a traditional family. And so um, when my dad wanted to motivate you know, me to do something, he would say, if I had a boy, he would go cut the grass, he would go do something. And so there was always this sense of like, I'm going to prove to you, you know, what I can do. And also that like, what you are, like what you're defined by doesn't really matter, you know? And so, um, you know, I always, I think broke boundaries, even when I was younger, I was the only girl on the boys soccer team, even when I was like four or five years old. And so that's something that I, I did until college the sense of like, I can be in all kinds of spaces. I mean, they may be uncomfortable for me, but I can learn how to operate, I think is a lot of where I come from. Amazing. I'm also a first generation Chinese American from Hong Kong. So a lot of things I've listened to a couple of your podcast interview, Young and Providing, before Mm -hmm. your book came out. And um, you guys were talking about your Jersey experience. And, you know, the first year when we immigrated to the States, we moved to Kansas after the first year. So that was not necessarily cultural diversity. 
And one thing that I really have not talked too much about it is that we did experience some racial discrimination. One of the family member was actually assaulted in an okay. interracial crime. So it's not something that I generally talk about. It's really have a lot of impact and I really have a lot of admiration for you and respect for you to speak up and also wrote the book that you wrote, The First of Your Only. And it was really kind of given us sort of like the power mm -hmm. to know that other people are also sharing similar experiences and it is okay to speak up. So yeah. for that, I, re I really want to thank you. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's really the intent or the reason I wrote the book. I think all of us were, there's so much shame associated with these topics, especially around first generation issues. I mean, there's lots of shame in all these topics that I work on, but I think with first generation, there's confusion too, because it's almost like for me, um, I don't know that I really owned being Indian, being younger, and I didn't necessarily want to be that. And being an Indian wasn't identity when I was younger. Like it, it wasn't defined in the media or people didn't know what it was. And so there was black and there was white, right? And, and when you grew up in America, you know, decades ago. And so I think I just felt lost and not seen, right? And then that shame that I think we all carry that we don't talk about, and especially in Asian culture, that you don't talk about these kinds of things, I think makes it a little bit worse. So I'm still in the early stages of talking about it, but I agree. I think that there's more people starting to talk about it. And I think we need more. We, there's a lot of, I think, identity um, and shame that we need to talk about in our in our cultures. And if we're going to really get, you know, break through it and, and have different kinds of conversations. And for so many years, the operating mode was really trying to assimilate to the mainstream culture. So you don't necessarily like taking out like a soft thumb. <laughs> yes. That was my mode of, of operation when I was growing up. You are a very successful you know, professional woman. Who is your role model growing up? Or maybe there's more than one. I'm sure that there was more, more than one, but why do you pick a certain role model? Yeah, it's funny. I don't feel like I had a lot of role models growing up when I was younger. Like I think my role model when I was little was like Wonder Woman, right? And primarily because I think she was one of the only female characters on television. I used to watch also like Kaki and Lacey, like I'm, I'm, I'm aging myself, but I used to watch like a lot of shows, Charlie's Angels, right? It was like, female mm. characters, you know, and not, some of them weren't the great female, the best female characters as role models. <laughs> They're the only ones that, you know, we had growing up like back then. I think when I think ahead, like when I really consciously chose a role model, I think it was probably more when I was in my teens and it became Oprah. Um, and I think it was because Oprah was talking, you know, it was when the time she had her show. Mm. Um, and I think for a lot of us of my age cohort, it was the first time like issues on identity, storytelling, you know, was, was kind of more of on a mainstream. So before she became popular, like I would go home and like watch her 4 p.m. show. And it was like one of the only places where I think people talked about the things that are more common and talked about now, but that she talked about. And so to, to me, she was like a role model of, I think, um, putting words to things that don't get addressed and yet really keep people down and really keep people back. You know, a couple of chapters in, in your book that really resonated with me. So I am going to kind of pick your brain a little bit. The first chapter is shredding the images that harm us. That's one of my favorite chapters. I think that you were talking about Lisa, one of the Asian Americans mm -hmm. that was like, basically, you nobody thought that she was had to go through all this obstacle. Mm -hmm. And the, the images, especially from what comes from the Asian culture and women, a lot of times, however successful that they are, they, we still carry that image or this ideal that you're supposed to be subservient. But for example, I have a business and my, my mom sometimes, I love my mom, so this is not a thing on her. It's just that the images 
that they carry with them from generations. And then for me as a as a entrepreneur and starting my business, I have a very successful business and I should actually be very proud of myself. But sometimes, for example, my mom would say that, oh, so-and-so said, no, that you have a business. How did they know? Yeah. I'm like, am I supposed to be ashamed of this? I don't know why, you know? So I think those are the images that you just want to not be visible so that this is her way of protecting me. I wonder what your thoughts on that would be. Yeah. So in the book, you're talking about Lisa, um, Lisa's son, and she's Taiwanese American. And she uh, was a junior partner at McKinsey. And she talks a little bit about how when she was up for the senior partner level, it didn't work out. And she talks quite a bit about having for a long time in her career, she was hiding parts of herself. Um, And she's this big, vivacious personality, but she felt in order to make it in certain uh, corporate spaces, she had to really, you know, frankly, assimilate to be like the white men around her. Um, And she realized at some point very late in the process that her real power came from being herself. But what you're also talking about is that her mom, I think for a long time, had a hard time with her wanting to leave that role. Um, And even all the choices she was making in her life, her mom was a little bit, uh, I think, critical. But she shared with me that when she finally decided to leave and launch her new company, which is Gravitas, it's a clothing company, very well known. Um, Her mom was really supportive and even set up like the website and did some of the paperwork to kind of register the company. And so I think, yeah, sometimes, especially when you come from an Asian culture, Asian background, there is a sense, I think, we don't talk about this enough, but that success and prestige, to your point, like assimilation, they're all tied to to what we've been taught is successful and how much our parents have sacrificed to come here. And so we have to be on a certain path. And I think when some of us choose entrepreneurship or to leave the corporate safety and the prestige, there's a lot of confusion around that. You know, when I finally left Deloitte, I posted on LinkedIn I think I had 70,000 views of this one post when I left. This is, you know, three years ago now, um, two years ago. um, And a lot of who wrote out to to me were Asian practitioners, both men and women saying, how did you tell your parents you were leaving? Because, you know, they must have assumed you you had to stay. Like, how did you tell them? And I thought that was such a strange question because I was in my 40s. Like, why why would I ask my parents permission before I left my job? But I think that's really there. So I think a lot of what I'm talking about in that chapter is that so much of what we've been taught about how to work and what we believe about ourselves and what we think is possible comes from our parents, but also comes from schooling and society. And for a lot of people of color and women of color in particular, Asian women, we get messages that we can't be more, that we have to fit into these certain roles. And unless we unpack them, unless we reprogram them, unless we do the work to see ourselves differently, those can be limiting beliefs. And I think we don't, we don't understand that sometimes. We don't understand how those keep us back. And so that's a lot of what I talk about. I'm glad that you shared that on, and you kind of explained that a little bit because the other chapter that I really like is like, should I stay or should I go? Basically, you know, when you have to make that decision, I'll share my story a little bit. Um, I've been, and basically my dad passed in 2017. And prior to that, exactly like what you said, is like, they help define my success as you make good money and you work at a prestigious firm and, you know, you are in a really successful profession. So part of it is that I think that my health started deteriorating because I work in litigation. You know, it doesn't matter what firm you work in, litigation is litigation. So industry-wide, it's very deadline-intensive and people are demanding. That's just the nature of the business. So I'm not, you know, whatever firm that I would work for, I think that it will still fall in the same thing. But for me, 
when I had to de- so my after my dad died, I have one less person to answer to mm-hmm. about my leaving. Yeah. So what I ended up doing is I was very unhappy. And I also have the responsibility of taking care of my mom. So my mom lives with me. But generally speaking, it's really interesting how on one hand, she would tell me, oh, you have a business, you know, but on the other hand, when I told her that I was going to leave my work, she didn't question me. Mm-hmm. She kind of trusted me. And I sometimes I just went through like, there's so much conflict there and I'm not even sure how to address it. So for me, it was really difficult to give up that lifestyle. And I wasn't sure. I knew that I'm really smart and I could do a lot of things and I'm very hard worker. So I very resourceful. So I should be fine. But I don't think I told anybody, but I wrote my resignation letter eight months prior and I sealed it. I put a day so that I can convince myself that this is the path for you to go because I know that there are there will be people that can talk me out of it. Yeah. It was just something that I really decided at that point when my I witnessed my dad's passing, because he passed away like suddenly. So when I saw that he was gone in four hours. So when you see someone's life just kind of like went by, mm-hmm. it was pretty traumatic. Yeah. And I just really decided to put my own health and also my own priority ahead of everyone else. So that's why I left. And when I left, I decided, oh, you know, I know how to do this type of work. I'll just open up my consulting firm and work in my basement. And it freed me up with like without a lot of deadlines. I It freed me up to take classes. I'm a continuous learner and that's how I got to know you. And so I think that was really good, but that struggle is real in terms of like writing that letter. And a lot of my friends were betting on like the people that are really close to me and that knew that I was planning on leaving was like, I don't think we could last eight months. I'm going like, don't count on it. I can do this, you know? So I just want to share that with you. So now the main topic of this, reinventing power in corporate America. You have done similar show that has uh, redefining power in corporate America. But I like to do something a little different. How do you define power? And is there any distinction between reinventing and redefining in terms of the power, in your opinion? Reinventing versus redefining. I mean, I think at its core, like we're in a place where I think that most of us have been taught to aspire to a, a kind of power that really doesn't work, that, you know, we're in a moment that well, many of us are questioning because of COVID coming out of COVID, like, does that even work? We have such inequity that we're talking about in, you know, very different ways. And so I think it, there's probably even a bigger word than either of those words that I probably would embrace. Like, it's like almost like a blowing up and a starting over, you know, when it comes to power. Um, and so I think that's really what I'm talking about. I think most of us enter corporate spaces thinking that power sits in the seats at the top and that once I get there, then I can show up differently. I'll do it my way, you know, up till then, like I'll compromise certain things. And one of the most shocking things that I found and why I wrote the book is because I started doing dinners and I was in an attempt to figure out if I wanted to stay or go. And I started meeting with women of color. Ron and I ended up doing a bunch of dinners um, but the real thing that came out of that is in the, one of the first dinners, a public company CFO said, I sit in a seat of power and I don't feel powerful. And then I started to see that in almost all the women that I was meeting. I was meeting with a lot of senior, like some of the biggest names in the country, right? And 
women of color. Um, and they were sitting in seat, not all of them, but many of them were sitting in seats of power and they had compromised in some ways who they were. They were sanitizing who they were. They were you know, whitewashing who they were. And I think that's really what I'm talking about, that power doesn't sit in the seats. Power comes from inside of us and power comes when we are in full voice. And I think, unfortunately, most of us have been taught, you know, you once you get to the seat, it'll, it'll all be better and it'll be okay. And part of my message is, no, we have to find ways to be ourselves as we're growing, as we're going. And that, you know, what you shared about your father, you know, in some ways is very similar to the pattern that I see for a lot of women. Most of us only seek out our definition of success after a big life ha event happens. So usually it's a sickness or a divorce um, you know, or some sort of other wake up, like where we were promised a promotion that we didn't get. And it's only in those moments of crisis where we have done everything we were supposed to do. So let's say it's a health issue, right? I ran every day, I ate really healthy and I saw a heart attack, right? Then it's like, but I followed all the rules and it still happened to me. It's only in those moments that we start to question, you know, and, and what do I need to do differently? And so I'm trying to get us to do that about power before we get to that seat and we feel crisis or we're, you know, we get to a seat and we're really questioning. It's I think there's a different way to do power. And I think that the moment that we're in is causing many of us to think about that. But I think for women and women of color, most of us are now reaching those seats and realizing that's not fulfilling or that's not satisfying or that's not even making us healthy and whole. It's actually depleting us. So we need to do that differently. I love how you put it all together so eloquently. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about the power of me versus the power of we? Yeah. Yeah. I believe there's two kinds of power, especially in corporate spaces, right? There's a work that you have to do on yourself. And that's what we're calling the power of me. That's the shedding and the carrying the only, the messages you have to work through. So much of this work is figuring out how do you want to show up? Not what have you been taught in how you want to show up, but how do you want to lead? And what does that look like for you? But then in order to change structures around us to really make change in companies and in corporate America in general, we need to work together. And that's the power of we, like we need community. So places like information or podcasts like this, like you, I think so much, and we started with this, like so many, so many of us are isolated. We, we think it's us without realizing some of these challenges that we're facing are universal. You know, some of the challenges you're explaining about your parents are the same ones that I have, right? We don't talk about them enough. And so finding spaces that we can talk about that and really find the power of we, because what I find is from the freedom from witnessing each other, the freedom from realizing it's not you allows you to then decide how you want to show up. You realize that those are not like my deficiencies or my problems or my issues. So I think in order to make real change in structures and in, in the environments around us, we need to do both of those kinds of work. What is authenticity? Because Brene Brown talk about authenticity a lot, and I love her work. But I wonder how that would play in the context of women of color, you know, reinventing this power structure. How does authenticity play into that, in your opinion? Yeah, you know, I think I think there's a lot of messages in the last couple of years are just about go be authentic, be yourself, right? And that's not really what my work focuses on, because I don't think we can fully be ourselves in the structures that are around us. Um, but I also think we have to figure out for ourselves the things that are important to us. Um, that really define who we are. And we have to not give on those things. And when I work with women, what I find is it's usually like six or 12 things that really identify our identity. And you can't compromise on those things because if you do even in small ways, it starts to add up. But I don't think this work, and I think that's why like a lot of the work on authenticity is just, it doesn't, it doesn't probably falls flat for me. Cause it's like this, you know, just go be, do, you know, just be in full, you know, all the time. And that's not really what we're talking about, you know? And sometimes when I give the example, like I'll say to people, you know, like 
I like to wear flip-flops at home. Me being authentic is not wearing flip-flops when, you know, when I was a partner at Deloitte, like that's not, that's, that, that just doesn't match the culture. Right. And so it's not about like you being you and always at all times. I think it's really reading the culture and then making conscious decisions about in that culture, what's going to work versus what is so important to me that even if it doesn't work in that culture, I need to stand my ground. And I think that's really what the struggle around a lot of corporate authenticity or like how we show up in the workplace. That's really what we're talking about. I think that has to be a balance somewhere in between because I think uh, who is it? Seth Golden, the guru of like basically part of market marketing, he was talking about how he he does not believe in authenticity. He said consistency is probably what we can aim for, and so I think that sometimes, like you said, it's like we really I don't know how much we can truly be authentic. You know, especially in the professional world. We have to do certain things to be a professional. And sometimes that is at the expense of us putting ourselves secondary. But like you said, it's a balance. And I also think it's changing. I mean, I think um, part of the challenge is that historically, there's been a very narrow definition, right, of like what success looks like. It's a box and it looks, you know, very much like the white men that have come before us. And as more of us take seats, and we're trying to change the definition of what executive ready or executive presence or what leadership looks like. I think that's a little bit of what we're talking about with authenticity too, right? The models that come around us don't always make space for us. And so we can be authentic, but that's not going to resonate in these situations that we're in. But I also don't want us to not be authentic at all because then we can't change those models and make space for more of us. So it's a little bit of a give and take, but I think people don't understand and for certain groups, it's a lot harder to be authentic. And that's really what the discussion is. What are some key lessons learned you would like to share with our audience? You know, I think the biggest one is the one I shared before that don't wait until you get to your destination to be who you are and who you want to be. It's like, do the work early to figure out what's really important to you, how you want to lead, what success looks like. And also remember that the experience of people around you and whether or not they feel like they belong is so much related to the people that they work with. So it's not like most, most employees and companies don't feel a sense of they don't belong because of their CEOs or their executive team. They feel like they don't belong because of the teams around them and the direct managers. And so realizing that, you know, as we're all climbing, as we're all leading the things that we do, the things that we say, the actions we take have consequences, not only for us, but for the people around us, I think is really important. And that realizing that work is one of the only places where we are learning about people who are different from us. 70% of white Americans live in communities that look like them. And so work becomes one of the only places where we are meeting and interacting with people who are different from us. So if we don't do some of the uncomfortable work around race and ethnicity or identity at work, we're not going to do it at the Starbucks or at the grocery store because that's just not how, our, how we live in the United States. And so I think those would be my three or four messages. I am so grateful to have this opportunity to chat with you. And um, I wish you well with all your endeavors, good health, happiness, and also keep doing what you do with information or, you know, spreading these messages. And I will be following you and supporting you from Northern Virginia. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for launching this uh, podcast. Thank you so much, Deepak. Oh.